Well, as I promised a few weeks back, this morning we are going to launch into a new sermon series on the Gospel of John. Years ago, I came across a famous poem that originated from a sermon that was preached back in 1926 by a pastor named James Allen Francis, which was later published in a book that, we, that he called The Real Jesus and Other Sermons. You may have heard of this poem before. It's entitled, One Solitary Life. It goes like this. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in still another obscure village where he worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. And then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family. He never owned a house. He never went to college. He never visited a big city. In fact, he never traveled more than 200 miles from the place where he was born. He did none of the things one usually associates with greatness. He had no credentials but himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves, and while he was dying, his executioners gambled for his clothing, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty-one centuries have come and gone, and today, Jesus is the central figure of the human race, the leader of mankind's progress. All the armies that ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that have ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned put together have not affected the life of mankind on this earth as much as that one solitary life. Today we embark on a study of that one solitary life, the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in our study we'll discover why he is the central and most influential figure in human history, and why he affected mankind more than anyone else who's ever lived, and why he still to this day continues to impact the lives of people all over this planet. The obvious conclusion is that he was not just a man, nor was he just some holy prophet sent from God like Muhammad or others who claimed to be that. He wasn't simply a good role model who came to show us how to live, or even a martyr who was willing to die for a noble cause. He was much more than these things. He was the Son of God. He was God's Son. And over and above that, the Bible reveals that Jesus was actually God himself in human flesh. He was God in a body. And there's no other book in the Bible that provides clearer proof and stronger evidence of the deity of Christ, the fact that Jesus is God, than the Gospel of John. John was Christ's nearest and dearest disciple who had the privilege of being a personal eyewitness to much of what Jesus said and did both publicly and privately uh, in uh, the last three years of his life. And it was obvious to John that Jesus was God because he was constantly saying and doing things that only God could say and do. And John's own life had been radically transformed through his relationship with Jesus Christ, and his supreme passion was to see the lives of other people be transformed as well. And yet he knew in order for their lives to be changed like his had been changed, they had to first believe that Jesus truly was the Son of God. And so under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, John sat down and wrote out the most intimate, inspiring portrait of the life and ministry of Christ that has ever been written. And I think it's safe to say that God has providentially used this portion of his word more than any other portion to help lead people to repent of their sin and to place their faith in his son, Jesus, in order to be saved from sin, death, and hell. In other words, it seems to me that more people have been born again, an expression, by the way, that we get from the book of John, is found nowhere else in Scripture, 
But, but it seems that, that more people have been born again, they've come to know Jesus Christ as their personal Lord and Savior by reading and hearing the Gospel of John than all the other books of the Bible combined. At the same time, I think it's interesting to note that few books of the Bible have been more viciously attacked and vehemently criticized by liberal scholars than the Gospel of John. And throughout the history of the church, critics have debated its origin, its, its contents, and even questioned its authenticity. In fact, some would have us just throw out the Gospel of John alongside other spurious Gospels or false Gospels like the Gospel of Thomas. And so the Gospel of Thomas is one of these apocryphal books, and it just contains some really bizarre stories, really just, um, I think, fabricated legends about Christ's childhood. For example, the Gospel of Thomas records how Jesus, when he was a little boy, would make clay birds and then bring them to life. Um, he was playing in a stream with his buddies one day, and he began providentially pooling the water over here and causing the stream to divert over here and, and just playing with the water as only God could, right? Um, it says that uh, Thomas records that he would actually levitate other kids who were naughty. And so if the little, one of his buddies did something wrong, he would levitate them off the ground and just kind of hold them up there so they learned their lesson, I guess. One of his friends, it says, fell off uh, his roof and died and Jesus brought him back to life. I mean, that's the kind of friend I want to grow up with, right? I wish I had one of those around. Just kind of you die, you wipe out on your bike, and you hit your head, and you come back to life. And so Jesus was bringing his friends back to life, or at least that's what gospel, or the Gospel of Thomas records. Another more um, violent account was that a child, another child accidentally bumped into Jesus, and Jesus cursed him, and, and, and the, 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 the little guy instantly keeled over and died, shriveled up. And when Jesus' neighbors heard about this and they came to complain to Joseph and Mary for having such a violent, non-sociable child, okay, who's killing other kids in the neighborhood, it says that Jesus got angry and he, he made them blind, these neighbors. And this is the Gospel of Thomas. I'm not making this stuff up. This is in there. You can check it out. Um, aren't you glad you know you haven't been missing anything in, the, in those apocryphal books, right? Well, John's Gospel doesn't include any of these ridiculous stories but liberals, nevertheless, still try to discount his credibility. And you say, well, what, what could they possibly point out that would be somehow undermining of this book? Well, let me just give you one example. One liberal scholar said this, that, quote, it is, it is almost impossible to believe that a personal disciple could thus have, have merged the actual figure of Jesus in the conception of a divine being. In other words, it's, it's, it's almost impossible to believe that how, how one of Jesus' own disciples could have actually believed that he was God. And so let's dismiss the gospel just because we have a hard time believing what John believed, that Jesus was God and everyone else should believe it too. I came across a, a fascinating quote by J. Sidlow Baxter, who was a classic a pastor and commentator, and he wrote a, a book called Explore the Book, which is all about the Bible. And listen to what he said about the critics or the criticisms that have been laid against John's gospel over the years. He said this, quote, the collision of pens, brains, theories, and prejudices has so developed around John's gospel that one can scarcely be charged with erratic imaginativeness for suspecting in it a very stratagem of Satan to obscure by the dust of debate the outshining splendor of this most precious gospel. In other words, that was a fancy way of saying that uh, in light of all the prejudices and the criticisms and the theories against swirling around John's gospel and all the debates, you know, nobody would think we were crazy to suggest that it was a satanic strategy to somehow... To, to obscure the splendor of this gospel with just covering it up with all this debate. I think he's on to something. One of the biggest, if not the biggest issue that has led some to doubt the genuineness of, of the gospel of John is how different it is from the other gospels. And if you don't know anything really about 
the Gospel of John in comparison to the other Gospels, I think you, you at least know that there's something different. It's set apart in some unique way from the first three Gospels. Now, when we talk about the, the, the Gospels, we're, we're talking about the four historical accounts of the life and teaching of Jesus Christ written by Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Now, the word gospel literally means what? Good news, right? And, and that good news is a reference to the hope-giving message that God has fulfilled the promises that he made in the Old Testament to send a Messiah who would bring salvation to his people. That's good news. But it's even greater than that. It's even better than that. Because no one could have ever anticipated that the Messiah that God promised to send would be God's one and only Son who would come to earth in the form of a man to live and suffer and die in our place to save us from his Father's wrath. And that's what the gospel is. That's the message of the gospel. It's the good news that Jesus Christ has come to earth to live the perfect life that none of us could live and to die the awful death that all of us should die. And that by simply believing that the life Jesus lived and the death Jesus died was the means and the only means, by the way, that God provided for us to be reconciled to him, to be justified or declared righteous or to be sinless before him and someday to be welcomed by him in heaven. In other words, the good news is this, that, that we are not and cannot be saved by anything we do, but by, by, but by what Christ has already done through his incarnation and crucifixion and resurrection. And that's the, the, the clear, consistent messages, message of all four of the Gospels. They basically say this, they all say the same thing. You say, well... If all the four Gospels say the same thing, then why do we need four Gospels? Wouldn't one have been enough? Well, I think we could liken the Gospels to a four-part harmony that's sung by a choir made up of, what, sopranos, altos, tenors, and basses. you got four parts of a choir, and, and if you're there listening to a choir, you don't want to be tucked over here in this corner and all you're hearing is the sopranos, or tucked over in this corner and all you're hearing is the basses. You want to sit right in the middle where you can get the full impact of that musical piece, right, blended and harmonized together. It's interesting that, that there's some books that I have in, in my office called The Harmony of the Gospels that are making this point that there are four Gospels and, and they need to be harmonized together because at some points they seem to contradict one another. They seem to be different, but they really all work together. They all harmonize. They all blend together so that we can experience the full impact of Christ's life. I think the Gospels could also be likened to, to four portraits of the same person by four different painters from four different perspectives or four photographs of the same person taken from four different angles. In other words, no one painting or picture can capture the full essence of, of a person. And so in order to fully a, appreciate the beauty and the grandeur of Christ, God provided us four paintings or, or four pictures to look at. And yet even so, Christ's glory is, is far too amazing to capture in a thousand Gospels, let alone four. I mean, Jesus Christ is, 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 is beyond time and space, he, 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 all that he is, all that he's done could not be put or could not fit in a world full of books. In fact, John himself ended his own gospel by admitting that no gospel could ever provide a comprehensive picture of Jesus' life and ministry. Even if they wanted to, it would be impossible. Listen to the last verse of the gospel of John. John chapter 21, verse 25, and there are also many other things what Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. And so we know that even though the four gospels are not even close to being an exhaustive study of the life of Christ, they do provide us with an accurate, reliable, trustworthy presentation of the personal work of Christ. And we need to keep in mind when we study the Gospels that when Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote their accounts of Christ's life and ministry, they all had a different audience in mind. 
and therefore they had a different purpose for their gospel. Matthew um, had Jews in mind. He was writing to his fellow Jews, and he wanted them to understand that Jesus was the Messiah who fulfilled all the Old Testament prophecies uh, of the Messiah, that he was the king, the promised king. And that's why over and over in Matthew, you hear him say, and these things happened or these things were recorded so that all that was written in the Old Testament would be fulfilled. So he's showing him, hey, Jesus is the guy. He fits the match, right? Mark was thinking about Romans, the Romans. He was writing to the Romans, and he wanted to present Christ as the perfect servant who gave his life to serve others. Mark 10, 45 could be his theme verse, which says the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life, what? As a ransom for many. Luke, Dr. Luke, was writing to Greeks, and he was wanting to present Jesus as a man. He, he refers to him as the Son of Man. Um, he, wanted, he wanted the Greeks to understand that, he was, that Jesus was a real human being who had come to seek and save lost humanity. Luke chapter 19, verse 10 says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that which was lost. And John, he had more than just the Jews and the Romans and the Greeks on his mind. He had everybody on his mind. He had the world on his mind, and he wanted to reach the world with the good news of Jesus Christ, specifically that Jesus was not just the Son of Man, he was the Son of God. He was God in human flesh who came to provide eternal life to those who believed in his name. And so, in some ways, the four Gospels are distinct from one another, and yet there is one thing that all the Gospels have in common. And that is how they highlighted or or climaxed, if you will, in the premier event in Jesus' life, and that was his death. All four of the Gospels end up at the foot of the cross. And they give special emphasis to the crucifixion of Christ. Some of you may have uh, seen that movie in recent years called Vantage Point. Kind of a fascinating story of a terrorist attack on an American president and It's witnessed from several different vantage points. Even though each person has a unique perspective of the event, all of the facts are true, and and at the end, they provide a complete picture of what really happened. And in a similar way, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they all look at Christ's death, that horrific event, from a different vantage point, and they make their own distinctive contribution to helping us fully understand and appreciate this pivotal event in God's plan of redemption. All roads lead to the cross. Now, having said that, there is something unique about John's gospel that really sets it apart from the other three in that it offers a perspective on Jesus that is truly um, unique to the others. You may be familiar with the term synoptic gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are referred to as the synoptic gospels. That word synoptic comes from two words, sin, which means together, and opsis, which means to view or see. And so the point is that, that Matthew, Mark, and Luke are grouped together in a category because they offer similar views of Christ's life and ministry. It's almost as if they were, they, they were seen together, they were viewed together, kind of seeing the same thing. And uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are mainly historical, chronological accounts of what Jesus said and did, whereas John provided a more topical, theological account of why Jesus said and did what he said and did. So there's something scary to me about the the Gospel of John, right? It's not just, okay, let's look at the facts. This is just a narrative going along, following the life and ministry of Jesus. The Gospel of John, the, the, the rules change, okay? Because it's more topical in its approach, and it's far more theological in nature. And... I'll be honest, that's kind of what has scared me off from it for all these years. And in fact, I was uh, interacting with someone via email this week, somebody in our church who was so excited that we were starting the Gospel of John. They'd been praying for it, and they were so happy that we were doing it. And I said, yeah, me too, except uh, just pray for me because it's a daunting task. And they emailed me back, meaning to encourage me, saying, it's just Jesus. Like, I went from, it's the Gospel of John to, it's Jesus, right? It's like, that wasn't encouraging, okay? That's even, that even freaks me out even more. Okay, let's go do something else, okay? Because it's all about Jesus. 
And yet it's interesting that even though John takes a more topical theological account, it is the chronology of Jesus' earthly ministry that comes from John's gospel. In other words, John's gospel is how we construct the chronology of Jesus' life and ministry. You'd think you'd go to Matthew, Mark, and Luke because they were kind of more following the path of, of his life and ministry. But if all you had were the synoptic gospels, you might conclude that Jesus' ministry lasted just a year. Because all they focus on is Jesus' ministry in and around Galilee, and then all of a sudden his last week that he goes down Jerusalem, where he dies and, and, and rises again. Whereas John, he highlights Jesus' ministry in and around Jerusalem as he attends these annual ceremonies and feasts of the Jews. In fact, John recorded three Passover celebrations that Jesus attended during his public ministry, which tells us that his ministry lasted approximately three years. I think another thing that sets John's gospel apart is that it was written much later than the first three gospels. Scholars say maybe between 85 to 100 AD is when John wrote this, the last gospel that was written. And I think based on what John included in his gospel and also what he didn't include, in other words, what he left out, it seems to me that John assumed his readers were familiar with the other three gospels. And he wanted to complement and supplement them rather than just be repetitive or redundant. And, and we, we know that because John contains lots and lots of information not found in any other gospel. In fact, 92% of the material in John is only found in John. That's a lot of original material. There's the wedding of Cana, the conversation with Nicodemus, the woman at the well, the raising of Lazarus, the washing of the disciples' feet, the upper room discourse, just to name a few of the unique uh, events and discourses that, 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 that um, John included in his gospel. He also left out some things that, that, that I think are common uh, to all three of the synoptic gospels, like there's no genealogy. In fact, he, he, just, he just blows off the genealogy of Christ. He just goes back to eternity past. So we're just going to take this back to where it really began. We're going to see that next week. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was what? With God, and the Word was God. So there's no, there's no genealogy. There's no birth of Christ. There's no baptism of Christ. There's no temptation of Christ. Uh, he leaves out the transfiguration. There's no parables, no exorcisms. Uh, he doesn't talk about the institution of the Lord's Supper or the agony in the Garden of Gethsemane. So he's very purposeful in what he's including and what he's not including. But it is helpful that, that we have um, Irenaeus, who was uh, one of the early church fathers, um, who, who, by the way, was discipled by Polycarp, who was discipled by John. So John discipled Polycarp, and Polycarp discipled Irenaeus. Okay, So there's a connection here. And Irenaeus wrote a book called Against Heresies in the last part of the second century, and this is what he said. He said, after the Synoptic Gospels were written, John, the disciple of the Lord, who also had leaned upon his breast, did himself publish a gospel during his residence at Ephesus in Asia. And so there you have um, a classic piece of what's called external evidence to the authority and the authenticity of the Gospel of John, that John actually wrote that. And whenever, whenever critics look at a book and they try to determine who wrote it and, and why it was written, they, they, they use both external evidence and internal evidence. External evidence is what everybody else says about the author or the, or the contents, and internal evidence is what the author himself says uh, or what is said in the book itself. And so we, we've got this external evidence of Irenaeus. But we also have, I think, an undeniable source of internal evidence in that John never mentioned himself by name in his gospel, and ironically, that proves that he wrote it. And there's a classic commentary by a guy named Westcott who kind of walked through logically eliminating all the other disciples as options of one who had written this book, and it had to be John, because John simply refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved. It's a beautiful expression that uh, he, he mentioned several times in this gospel. John 13, verse 23, he says, there, were, there, there were, was reclining on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. 
Uh, He says it again in chapter 19, verse 26. When Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold, your son. Chapter 20, verse 2. So she ran and came to Simon Peter, this is Mary Magdalene, and the other disciple whom Jesus loved and said to them, they have taken away the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. And again in chapter 21, verse 7. Therefore, that disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, it is the Lord. And then verse 20, it says again, Peter turning around and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them, the one who would also lean back on his bosom at the supper and said, Lord, who is the one who betrays you? So Peter, seeing this man, said, Lord, what about this man? And then look, notice verse 24, the confirmation here. Second to the last verse in the gospel, this is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. So an ironic way of proving the authorship of John is the fact that he never mentioned himself. He's the only disciple not mentioned. And not only is this evidence that John was the author of this gospel, I think it's also evidence of how dramatically his life was transformed through his interaction with Jesus Christ. Let me remind you about This man, John, John and his brother James, grew up in Galilee. They made a living as fishermen in their father's uh, Zebedee's uh, fishing business, fishing trade. They were the ones who were referred to in the Gospels as James and John, the sons of Zebedee, right? His mother's name, John's mother's name was Salome, who was the sister of Mary, the mother of Jesus. I didn't know this. But when you look at the parallel accounts and harmonize the Gospels, it it, it, it becomes apparent that John and Jesus were actually cousins. John was originally a follower of John the Baptist until he was called by Jesus to follow him full time. He became one of Jesus' 12 disciples. In fact, not only that, he was also part of Christ's inner circle along with his brother James and Peter. So you always hear Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, and John, Peter, James, and John, right? Those three guys kind of were, were the three stooges, maybe, if you will, that they always hung around each other and were, were privileged to be eyewitnesses of, of special events like the transfiguration and the healing of Jairus' daughter and even Christ's agony in Gethsemane. He pulled James, Peter, and John, or Peter, James, and John away with him to pray with him as he agonized in prayer himself. Jesus also had sent Peter and John um, to make preparations for their final Passover together. If you remember, after Jesus was arrested, John used his connections with the, 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 the Romans and, and, and even the, 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 uh, the Pharisees and the Sadducees to get Peter into the courtyard of the high priest during that trial, and that was the fateful uh, site where Peter denied that he knew Christ three times. And after he had been abandoned by Peter and, and the rest of the disciples had already fled into the night, John was left standing alone. He was the last... Last disciple standing, he was the only disciple to witness Christ's crucifixion. And I think it was natural for Jesus as he was there hanging on the cross, he looked down and at the foot of the cross, there was John. And in that precious, tender moment, he entrusted to John the care of his mother Mary. After it was announced by Mary Magdalene that Jesus had risen from the dead, Peter and John ran together to the tomb to see if it was so. John is mentioned along with Peter at the beginning of the book of Acts as a leader in the early church. He became one of the pillars of the church in Jerusalem along with Peter and James. Galatians 2.9 mentions that. He eventually became the pastor or the bishop of the church in Ephesus where he likely wrote this gospel as well as the three short epistles, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. And then he was later exiled by the Romans to the island of Patmos where you know what happened there, right? Jesus revealed to him the dramatic events leading up to his second coming and eternal reign, and he penned it all down, wrote it all down, and it became the book of Revelation. And so John outlived all the other disciples, and he was mightily used by the Lord despite his initial shortcomings. And, and we know from what the scriptures teach us that he had a very fiery, outspoken personality that he had demonstrated early on in his time with Christ. In fact, the passion and the zeal that he and his brother uh, had earned them the reputation as the sons of thunder. Mark chapter 3, verse 17, that was their nickname. Jesus nicknamed them the sons of thunder. I mean, you you just kind of get the picture of these two guys riding up on Harleys, you know, 
You know, they got their leather coats, Sons of Thunder on the back, you know, or maybe a WWF, you know, tag team guys, you know, Sons of Thunder. But the Gospels record a couple incidents that, that I'm sure had a lot to do with Jesus nicknaming, nicknaming these guys the Sons of Thunder. In Luke chapter 9, verse 54, Luke records how they boldly asked Jesus if they could call down fire from heaven to, 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 to consume the Samaritans because they weren't hospitable to Jesus when he, when he passed through town. And Jesus said, hey guys, relax, it's okay. In Mark chapter 9, verse 38, uh, James and John proudly told Jesus how they had rebuked a guy for casting out demons in Jesus' name. Like, hey Jesus, we, we heard a guy, he was casting out demons, he used your name, we shut him down, man, we shut him down, because he's not one of us. You know, he's not one of the 12 disciples. And Jesus said, hey, if he's not against me, he's what? For me. And probably the most embarrassing moment of his early career was when he and his brother James selfishly asked Jesus to let them sit on either side of his throne when he ascended to glory, right, as they thought he was going to be in, in Jerusalem. They wanted the two highest places of honor on his right and left hand. Mark chapter 10, verses 35 through 40. And so with that in mind, the fact that John intentionally left out his name in his gospel, his gospel, he was writing his gospel, he left out his own name, shows that he had got got it. This was not the gospel of John, this was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he'd become much more selfless and, and humble, and it was no longer about him, it was about Jesus. He had learned how to decrease so that Christ could increase. But at the same time, it's obvious as well that he never lost his passion and zeal for Christ. And there was nothing that he wanted more than to see other people's lives be radically confronted and changed by Christ like his had been. In fact, that's the main reason why he wrote his gospel. John is the only gospel writer who explicitly stated his purpose for writing. Turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31, and just going to give you a spoiler warning right now. Okay, this is a spoiler warning. If you don't want to see the end, don't turn here, okay? But this is going to give away the ending. This is the punchline of the whole gospel, and yet I think it's very important that we know it at the, at the outset so that we accurately interpret and apply everything we're going to be studying in light of its intended purpose. Notice John 20, verse 31. John says, Therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. In other words, I've left a lot of stuff out. There's no way I could have included everything that, that, that I saw and heard Jesus do. But these, what I have included, what... That these have been written so that you may, what? Believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have, what? Life in his name. So the, so the primary thing that John wanted to prove here in this gospel is that Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ that God had promised to send. But even more importantly, that the Christ, the Messiah, was God's own son. And so he says, I've written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God. And so that's why he structured his gospel in such a way to lead the reader to the unmistakable conclusion that Jesus is the son of God. And so he mainly focused on events and discourses not found in the Synoptic Gospels to show, as I said earlier, how Jesus did and said things that only God could do and say. And so that's why in the first part of the Gospel, he highlighted seven miracles that Jesus performed, the changing water into wine and the healing of the nobleman's son and the healing of the paralytic by the pool of Bethesda and the feeding of the 5,000 and walking on water and restoring the sight of the man that was born blind, the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So he highlights these seven miracles, but he also highlighted seven I am statements that Jesus declared of himself. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection of the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the true vine. And I think the point was not 
that Jesus was the bread of life or the light or the way, the truth, and the life or the vine. It was that he was the I am, which was reminiscent of what God said to Moses in the burning bush when Moses said, oh, by the way, God, who shall I tell Pharaoh has sent them or the people, your people, who shall I tell them? Would you have a name that I can use when I show up in town and they're going to go, who are you and who is this God you're talking about? And he said, just tell them I am sent you. I am? Okay, I am what? No, I am, period. And so Jesus took on that Old Testament name for God, he took it upon himself. He used it of himself, clearly declaring himself as God. And as we'll see, the more he did that, the madder people got. And when he claimed to be God, they started picking up stones to kill him. And there was no question in the people's minds who lived and walked with Jesus during his lifetime They knew exactly what he was doing. He was claiming to be God. And so John masterfully weaves together really the most powerful apologetic for the deity of Christ in the entire Bible. In fact, there's I have an older Bible that I'm not using to preach from, but that I actually kind of made some notes that if I ever got backed into a corner and somebody was questioning me about the deity of Christ, that I could just walk them through several passages from John 1 all the way to John 20, and just at various points along the way, showing them that Jesus clearly claimed to be God, and everybody knew that that's what he was claiming to be. I don't have time to take you through those. Maybe we'll do that next week, because that might be helpful for you to have those verses kind of memorized so you can walk someone through those as well. But I want you to notice that here in verse 31 of John chapter 20, John wasn't content just to merely confirm the truth that Jesus has got. In other words, some people are content to make the case and go, you know, I made a really good case for that. He, wasn't, he didn't say, hey, you know, I just want to make a case for the fact that Jesus is the Son of God. And he kind of patted himself on the back and said, you know, hey, I did a good job making this case. I feel good about it. See, that wasn't the ultimate aim of John. The ultimate aim of John was not simply to prove that Jesus was the Son of God. That was a means to an end. Ultimately, he wanted people to believe that. And by believing that, they would live. They would experience abundant life here on earth and eternal life, right, in heaven someday. And, and really, the, the two key words in this gospel are here in verse 31. It's the word believe and the word life. You may want to circle those words, underline those words, highlight the word believe and the word life because John repeats these words over and over and over again throughout his gospel. He uses the word believe close to 100 times, 98 to be exact. He uses the word life 36 times. And so John wanted people to put their faith and trust in the truth of Christ's deity so they could experience what life is truly all about. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should have what? Life. Have eternal life. Now there's a debate amongst Bible scholars, whether the believe here is in the present tense or the aorist tense. Don't let me lose you here because you're going to find out. I'll just give you away right now. It really doesn't matter. <laughs> it really doesn't matter because the message is the same. The point's the same. But some would say, well, if it's present tense, that would mean that John's purpose was really to bolster the existing faith of believers. In other words, to encourage them to keep on believing and enjoying the kind of life that results from faith in Christ. If it's the aorist tense here, that 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 would mean John's purpose was to lead non-believers to faith in Christ. In other words, that that the gospel of John is just simply a gospel presentation that that just simply and clearly explains how a person is to be saved. You say, well, well, what is it? I'd say yes. (laughs) It's both. And history has shown that this gospel has effectively served to accomplish both purposes. 
Wouldn't you agree that the Gospel of John is, is one of the, if not most, beloved book of the Bible by believers, by Christians? And if you take a survey, hey, what's your favorite book of the Bible? Or if you even say, what's your favorite gospel? The hands will go up. 90%, majority of people say the gospel of John. At the same time, I think the gospel of John has been used by God, as I said earlier, to win countless unbelievers to Christ. I mean, there's a reason why John is typically, the Gospel of John is typically the first book that a new believer is encouraged to read. How many of you, when you came to know Christ, somebody said, read the Gospel of John? How many of you, okay, apparently you didn't grow up in the same kind of circles I grew up in because that was all they told you was read the Gospel of John. You'd think that was the only book in the Bible, right? Read the Gospel of John. How many of you, maybe before you were saved, somebody said, read the Gospel of John? Anybody tell you to do that? Okay. There's a reason why literally millions of copies of John's gospel have been distributed worldwide for evangelistic purposes. I mean, it's the number one part of God's word that's, that's, that's copied and distributed all over the world. There's something special. There's something unique about the gospel according to John. And again, the main application of this gospel that John just drives home again and again and again and again is believe and live, believe and live, believe and live, believe and live. Which, by the way, doesn't just apply to unbelievers. It also applies to believers. Why? Because Christ is our what? We learned it in Colossians chapter 3, verse 4. Christ is our life. And so we need to get ready for what will begin to maybe sound like a broken record as the theme of John is, is born out here. Believe and live and believe and live as we study through the, the gospel. We're going to hear it over and over again. Believe and live, believe and live. And apparently there's even been some preachers who have gotten to, say, chapter 9 and said, I'm done. I, I, I just say, It's the same message every Sunday. Let's move on. They, they either got bored or they were concerned that the people were getting bored. And I think what will keep us from getting bored of this believe and live is to remember that this is not just a presentation of the gospel, but a presentation of the transcendent glories of Jesus Christ. That's what ultimately this is. And in the very first chapter... John reveals this in John chapter 1, verse 14. He says, The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His, what? Glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In my opinion, the, the definitive modern-day commentary on the Gospel of John has been written by a man named D.A. Carson. You may have heard of D.A. Carson. And uh, at the end of his massive introduction, where he spends pages after pages proving the authenticity of the gospel and that John wrote it, I'm like, hey, dude, I appreciate you and love you, man, but I already believe that, so I'm moving on. But I caught at the tail end of this introduction, there was a section entitled Preaching the Gospels. And I thought, hmm, I got to read this and see what he has to say. And I was so glad I did, because this is what he said, quote, Preaching from the Gospels is above all an exercise in the exposition and application of Christology. Christology is the doctrine of Christ. So it's all about expositing, explaining, and applying Christ. And he suggests very wisely that one way to dissolve the boredom problem, right, that we might uh, feel here shortly is to concentrate on Jesus himself, on the fathomless Christological wealth bound up in this gospel. In other words, just stay focused on Jesus in this gospel. Because, after all, it's a gospel, and it's about Jesus. It's not about us, right? 
And so we need to be careful not to spend so much time trying to draw application for our lives that we skip the most important basic question we need to be asking ourselves every week is, what does this passage have to tell us about Jesus? What can we learn about Jesus? How can we get to know Jesus better through what is being said here? Now, granted, there will be many passages in John's gospel that we can make direct application to our lives. For example, just from this morning's introduction, if you're an unbeliever, the application for you is, who do you think Jesus is? Who do you think Jesus is? You've got to make up your mind. You've got to decide who Jesus is. He either is who he said he was, right, or he's not. But make no mistake, your quality of life here on earth and your eternal destiny depend on what you do with Jesus. You've got to make up your mind. That's some good application. How about for us as believers? I mean, look at John, right? John's life was transformed through his relationship with Jesus Christ. And all he wanted to do was to share Christ with others even to the point where he actually wrote an entire gospel. How about us? Your, your life has been changed by Christ, I trust. My life has been transformed through my relationship with Christ. The question is, do we have a passion to tell others how he can change their life too? Kelly stopped by the office yesterday. I was cranking this out yesterday afternoon, and, and uh, she came by. She just got back from her all-time favorite grocery store, Trader Joe's. Uh, are you part of the cult? Okay, Kelly's part, of the, Kelly's part of the cult, okay? She drank the Kool-Aid, okay? They're selling down there, and uh, it just finally came to Woodlands, and she's pumped, so she wants to move the Woodlands down. Just kidding. Um, but she, she, she wanted to go down there yesterday and pick up some stuff uh, that you can't get anywhere else. That's the point, right? Uh, and so she wanted to take, she took one of her friends, and, and she, she came to my office, and I said, hey, I said, how did it go? Did you have fun? And she said, yeah, it was really fun, and it was really fun to take, to, to show, share something I love, this is what she said, to share something I love with someone I love. And of course, I was like studying the Gospel of John, had Gospel of John on the brain, and I was like, cha-ching, that's evangelism, that's witnessing, that's sharing the Gospel with others, it's, it's sharing someone you love Jesus Christ with someone you love, whether it's a family member or a neighbor or a coworker or a classmate. Hopefully you're loving these people, right? And so you're just simply sharing someone you love with someone you love. And hopefully that'll just take the fear and the weirdness out of it all and, 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 and just give you just confidence and it's just make it easy and natural and even fun to share Christ. Sharing someone you love with someone you love. So there's some good application here in the Gospel of John, but overall, there are far more passages in John's Gospel, which the best application is simply to reflect on what the passage says about Christ. What does it say about Jesus? And so as we study the Gospel of John, we're going to get to know Jesus better. How's that for an application? Anybody up for that? That we would see Jesus more clearly and as a result, love him more dearly. And yet even then, we must still admit that Jesus Christ and his great love will always remain a mystery to us. And I appreciate what one commentator said in his introduction to his commentary. He said, we're invited to approach reverently, to gaze wonderingly and adoringly upon the glory of of the everlasting Son made flesh. But who the Son is remains a mystery beyond our comprehension. It is this mystery which lies behind the revelation of John's gospel. For while by the end of it we may sense we know Christ better, but at the same moment we will find ourselves having to acknowledge that he is even further beyond our grasp. The mystery of Jesus Christ is the theme of this gospel, always beyond us, yet always beckoning us to explore it more fully. And then he said this, the exploration of the Godhead, exploring God, the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, will be our endless 
though blissful task in the world to come. In other words, what are we going to do in heaven for all eternity? Sit up on a cloud and play a harp? I don't think so. We're going to be exploring the Godhead. That will be our endless blissful task in the world to come. And he says, but we can begin it now. We can start now exploring the Godhead. And there can be no better place to launch out into the depths of the Godhead than to study and expound this great gospel of John. Let's pray. Father, we are super excited to get to know you better through your son, Jesus Christ, because we know that he was you in a human body. And Lord, the only reason why we we know that is because you've revealed that to us. And your spirit has opened up our eyes to see the scriptures and what they say, and we've believed it. Why? Because you've granted us faith to believe that, even though it makes absolutely no sense to a normal person without the Spirit of God. And so we just want you to know how grateful we are, Lord, that we can come to the book of John and not have to sit here and spend weeks arguing whether or not it's even, whether it even should be in the Bible, let alone who wrote it. And Lord, that we can just come to it in faith and, and, and believe that it's true. And Lord, that we are gonna learn so much about you. We're gonna see you so much more clearly and hopefully love you more dearly. And Lord, I know that this, you have plans for this gospel in my life. You have plans for this gospel in the life of this church. And in every individual life, Lord, there's some people who, who have been attending our church for years, Father, that I'm convinced they don't know you. They're, they're not saved yet. Maybe they're still children or young people. Lord, there's somebody that may just be coming for the first time this Sunday, Sunday, and they don't know you yet. They don't know Jesus Christ. But Lord, there's no better place for them to, to meet you than in the Gospel of John. And so we're just going to trust you that you're going to use this book to have a profound impact in all of our lives, whether we know you or not, Lord, that we can grow to know you better and we can even come to know you for the first time. And so, Lord, we just ask that you would, your, that your spirit would have its way in our lives through our study of this beautiful account of the life of your son, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.